Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Steve Webber earned his winemaking stripes at Leo Buring and Lindemans, but is best known for what he's achieved in the Yarra Valley at De Bortoli over the last 34 years. A passionate Francophile, as well as a proud Australian, he's long championed elegance and finesse, especially in Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, making wines that he wants to drink above all. Wine, he says, should be a source of joy as well as a job. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Tim. How are you going? Um, absolutely fine. And you're in the Yarra Valley, aren't you, lucky man? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's the middle of winter, but it's, uh, you know, it's fantastic. So. It's still one of the most beautiful places on earth. You must be so happy waking up looking at that every morning, aren't you? Yeah, look, it is really beautiful. You know, I think uh, I think when we came here, I, I think we were just stunned um, at, uh, you know, that was sort of 34 years ago or thereabouts. I think we were just really stunned at the landscape. And, and it just, you know, it's, it's always a bit different and there's a lovely sort of depth of view, which I think is, you know, is fantastic about the valley as well. So, I mean, I've not been for a while, but I always love taking photographs there, especially if you can be able to get a bed early in the morning. It's some great <laughs> views, aren't there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great. Listen, I want to talk to you a little bit about your background because I read once that you once said you fell into wine, but that's not completely true, is it? I mean, it's probably you being a bit modest, I'd imagine, because your dad was an agronomist, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was, and he was very interested in wine and uh, and things like that. And he did some consultancy to some some various sort of, you know, vineyard developments and that sort of stuff. So we were always sort of visiting vineyards and doing all that sort of stuff when when we were kids. And, uh, but I, I suppose, you know, like any kid, you know, um, you don't really know what you want to do. And so, um, you know, one suggestion my father said is, why don't you go and try, you know, work in a winery and see whether you might, you know, want to become a winemaker. And, uh, and, uh, so I, I did a vintage and like anybody doing their first vintage, you know, pretty excited. And so I was sort of hooked, I suppose, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I managed to work at, um, you know, started Leo Buring's, which was quite a famous reasoning producer at the time. And, um, and you know, they gave me some fantastic opportunities. I mean, that was in 1978, wasn't it? It is, yeah. I don't want to remind you, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you ever consider being anything else? I've had all sorts of people on this podcast, you know, a lot of people who didn't make it as medics or dentists, even someone who wanted to be an astronaut. Did you have any kind of other dreams going up? I don't know what I wanted to do really. You know, I think I was just, um, you know, I used to play a lot of tennis as a kid. And so I, I, you know, was at a quite good at tennis. So I guess some early stuff was that I'd love to have been a tennis player, but um, no, I was never good enough for that. So, yeah. And, and what was your role at Leo Buring? Was it kind of typical cellar rat? You were just pulling hoses and. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just I look, I suppose, you know, general cellar hand stuff, you know, in those days we, we had, um, they had concrete tanks and we were having to wax those tanks and, you know, having to go down in this bloody small hole and, uh, and you know, spraying the wax on and then, you know, burning it was hot, miserable bloody work. But, um, but I think, you know, look, you, you've got to start 
you know, doing all that sort of stuff. I mean, the first job somebody learns around here is to clean a tank properly, you know. Mm. Um, so it's the same sort of thing, you know, um, in those days. And, and you know, it look, look, the winery was actually quite a modern winery at the time, you know. Um, so we were doing sort of um, they didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, chillers, you know, chilling plates on tanks, so we had to do external chilling and, and, yeah, and that type of thing. But I, I suppose it's just sort of gaining confidence a little bit, you know, because it does take a long time once you start in a winery to, to, to get some confidence in what you're doing and you're not, you know, shit scared all the time of, of, of turning a pump on or touching something. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Leah Buring, you must have done well because Leah Buring helped put you through Roseworthy Agricultural College, which is Australia's top wine school. I, I just wonder what was the practical and academic focus in those days? Because it's changed a lot, hasn't it, since the early 80s? Yeah, look, I think, look, when we went there, um, uh, a great range of people, some people had already done degrees, some people had were raw from, from, um, from high school, um, others were already established, you know, in business, some were vets and doctors and that type of thing going and doing a course and everybody lived on site. Mm. Um, so every day you were drinking you know, we had a wine tasting every day in somebody's room, um, you know, trying different things. And so the weekends were were spent, um, you know, crawling through wine shops in, in Adelaide trying to find something that nobody had ever tried before. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting. We, we used to, you know, yet go into there. And I remember buying some one Turner estate in the early days, you know, from Victoria. And, you know, later I, I had become a... Um, you know, a local here in the Yarra Valley, but people were very interested in Yarra Valley in those days, you know, some of the early pioneers. So I think, um, you, you know, while it may not have been as technical as it is now, I think you got a real feel for for wine and 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 you were living with a whole group of, you know, we had 25 in our class and I'm still, you know, pretty good friends with all 25 of them. And, you know, when we see them, you know, we do reminisce about some of the, fantastic times and um we we had a journalist um uh, in our course he, he was actually doing the wine marketing course hugh and hook and you would know hugh and quite well uh, hugh and very well yeah and uh he he was you know he, he was fantastic he he used to bring his you know two or three dozen bottles each term to to his room and we would we, you know we'd get through that and everybody would probably do the same sort of thing so I, I, I suppose what it lacked in in academic excellence or whatever, um, we got a lot of really practical side of it, and yeah, I yeah. don't think I don't think there's anybody that came out of Roseworthy, um, you know, that didn't have a real passion for wine, you know, mm. based on that. And I think I I look at some of the some of the kids going to Adelaide University now and things, and they you know they've got their own group of friends doing other things they don't seem to get together i don't think like we would have in quite the same way in the yeah. early days yeah i mean after you graduated the sort of formative experience you spent 7 years at Lindemans, Liam Buring and you worked with quite a few legends there didn't you know John Vickery Phil Laffer Carl Stockhausen they, these are big names I and mean, did they mentor you in a way yeah look i think um you uh, it it was quite quite interesting i i worked with you know with those guys as well as quite a few others. I had a lot to do with Philip Laffer toward the end of my time there. He'd, he'd sort of come down in more of a management role to, to where I'd been working. And, um, and I, but I think, um, at Lindemans, you always knew where you were in the pecking order. 
um, in terms of tasting, you know, like you would taste last, you know, there'd be, you know, Philip Laffer, there'd be Albert Chan, there'd be Philip John, there'd be, you know, a few of these other people well ahead in the pecking order and you'd be sort of, you know, down the, down, down the sort of back listening. Um, so I suppose, you know, they were, um, stricter times, I suppose, you know, we take on a graduate and they say, step aside, Steve, I'm, I'm about to start tasting, you know, sort of thing. So <laughs> I think it's, um, you know, it, I think Lindemann's had real disciplines in place that yeah. um, have, you know, have really taught me a lot about winemaking and winemaking disciplines and things like that. And, you know, and I, I've got some other things to say about that, but, um, but we'll leave that for the minute. <laughs> in 1989, you left Lindemann's to join De Bortoli, yeah? Had, had, yeah. You, had you met your wife, Leanne, Leanne De Bortoli, obviously, um, by then? I mean, how did you guys get together? Is she a winemaker too? Well, she studied wine marketing at a different time at Roseworthy. She also went to, to Roseworthy. And we'd got married um, in 88 and, uh, yeah, 88. And so when she'd come to Coonawarra to um, to live there, you know, sort of with me, and while we are there, her, her mum and dad approached us and said, would we come and, and uh, set up the Yarra operation for them, that they bought the vineyard. Uh, they bought a winery over here about eighteen months previous, and um, and uh, they they were wanting to you know you know develop the property, develop the winemaking side. I think in the early days they were quite interested in um, in making sparkling wine, and and um, you know thirty years on, where we're now just starting to get really active in sparkling wine, but it's taken us sort of thirty years to, uh, <laughs> to get to get there. Tell us a bit more about De Bortoli as a company because it was, it was founded by an Italian, wasn't it? Uh, and then he kind of went to Riverina. Just tell us about how many vineyards it owns today and how much wine does it make and how the company's evolved over the years. I mean, are you involved with all bits of it or just the Yarra bit? Uh, I'm involved in mostly the Victorian side of the operation. So um, just just going back in history, it was um, uh, Leanne's grandfather came out to Australia in 1924. Mm-hmm. Um, by 1928, came with nothing. By the by, nineteen twenty eight, he'd saved up enough money to buy a mixed farm in in Griffith in New South Wales. Um, you know, growing grapes and and peaches and apricots and all of that sort of stuff. And and uh, being a good Italian, he would he would grow um, you know grow asparagus on the Channel Banks, or he'd grow um, you know pumpkins to make extra money to be able to afford to do some stuff. And so he he set the company up and. And um, he had uh, three three children, uh, two girls and a boy, um, and he was very very successful um, with what they did. They would sell, you know, they would make anything, any colour, any flavour, any you know, a lot of fortified wine and things like that. And he, um, uh, you know, they made a lot of money, and uh, they set up, you know, sort of distribution in Sydney. And um, and it wasn't until sort of you know, Dean came along and, you know, ran the winery, Leanne's father, and he basically took it from a, you know, from a, a small Italian winery to something quite large. And um, him and um, and Leanne's older brother, his older son, they were very, very keen on, on you know, developing vineyards in southern Victoria and particularly the Arrow Valley. So um, in 1978, uh, in 1987, they they bought a property in in the Yarra, and um, and since then, since that sort of time, that sort of you know thirty five years or so ago, they've expanded to uh, three three estates in the Yarra Valley for for a total of about two hundred and fifty hectares. 
Um, the original plantings uh, on the Yarra property were 12 hectares, so there's been a fair bit more development going there. And um, since then we've we've planted, um, uh, you know, vineyards in the King Valley where we've got another 200 hectares um, and we're, we're very interested at the moment in Heathcote where we... Um, and and we're we're very interested in Heathcote for several different reasons and and things. We just see a, a massive future of of Shirab, you know, Shirab Grenache type blends and things like that. And Grenache is something I'll talk about a bit later. But um, but yeah, we're very we're very keen on on uh, on that region. And we we have about 120 hectares now, and we're expanding that operation. And then recently we bought. Um, uh, we bought a property in Rutherglen, an established property called Rutherglen Estates, and where we've got you know quite large vineyard holdings, lots of fortifieds, lots of you know really interesting um, other vineyards, and uh, yeah, we're we're quite excited about that. And you're still family owned, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, still, still family owned. So in Victoria, we 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 um, we cultivate you know something like. 800 hectares of vineyards, you know, producing about um, about 8,000 tonnes of fruit, I suppose. And um, and then we're, we've got another one, you know, our major winery in New South Wales is, is has a crush of generally about 50 or 60,000 tonnes a year. So it's, you know, quite a big, quite a big operation. In, you, know, it, you know, it employs quite a lot of people, 400-odd full-time people. So, yeah, it's a large, you know, family wine business, um, we do some other farming and things like that as well, where we grow rice and cotton and some of those sort of things to you know, diversify a little bit. So it's great. Plenty to keep you occupied then. But t- tell us a bit more about the Yarra Valley, because for people who don't know it, I mean, we've mentioned how beautiful it is. Just tell us, you know, where it is and what are the major influences on the climate, maybe the subregions that there are within the valley? Yeah, look, I, I guess the Yarra um, is, is one of five main regions around Melbourne. So we're about 50 kilometres to the northeast of of Melbourne City. Um, so there's – and then to the south of Melbourne is the Mornington Peninsula, about the same distance, and to the west is the Bellarine Peninsula, which is about the same distance, and to the north um, you've got um, sort of Macedon, and they're the sort of main regions around Melbourne, and all are quite cool climates, all, you know, concentrating on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. But the Yarra is um, is is basically divided into two two areas, I suppose, and that is it's the lower sort of reaches of the Yarra Valley in in around the the townships of Hillsville and Yarra Glen, um, and uh, and there's the upper parts of the Yarra that um, aren't particularly higher in altitude, but they're um, they're certainly cooler and much higher rainfall. So we, we we roughly call it the upper and lower reaches of the Yarra Valley, two, two quite different climates. Um, soil types up there can vary, but they're predominantly um, they're sort of predominantly volcanic, which is um, which is quite usual for a lot of the regions that around yeah, northern Tasmania, same sort of soil types, this um, sort of basalt. I think it was the same volcano in 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 Bass Strait. But you know, parts of the Mornington Peninsula where, you know, Red Hill, Main Ridge, same sort of soil types, these deep red sort of um sort of basalt soils. So uh, we've got that part of the Yarrow, which is, you know, high rainfall, probably in in your terms, 
about 50 inches of rainfall a year, yeah, maybe 60 in some places. And you've got, um, you've got, you know, Dixon's Creek where we are, which is about 27 inches of rainfall, 28 inches of rainfall, something like that. So quite a lot drier. All sedimentary soils down here in this part of the valley, the odd sort of outcrop of granite or, you know, here and there, but no, it, you know, it's predominantly, you know, siltstone, sandstone and limestone. Interesting. Just tell us a bit about the way you farm, because I know that sustainability is a big focus for you guys across the company. How does that affect what you do, particularly in the vineyard? Yeah, look, I think um, sustainability is really important. We we don't have an organic um, certification. We we you know we're, we're we're quite similar to the French in it's sort of a bit more la lutte raisonnée um, type type viticulture. We do a lot of um, we do a lot of work with our soils in terms of um, trying to increase the biology in the soils. Um, we're, we're making a thousand tons of compost a year, all sort of green manure green manure compost um, and we're spreading around that we do a lot of compost tea work and things like that to try and improve the biology and and get more you know try and store water in the soil rather than you know letting it run off and things like that so um you know there's a lot of that type of thing we're, we're incredibly sensitive to um to you know anything nasty we still use the occasional herbicide but we're we're generally you know it's it's big scale viticulture here, but we're really trying to do it on a you know a, a really sympathetic way, I suppose, as you know as best we can with all of our waste, you know, water streams and things like that. You know, whether it's grape mark or whether it's uh, um, sort of wastewater from the winery, that's all recycled, all reused back on the vineyard. Um, so you know, it's a fairly closed system here. We and 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 I suppose like like everybody, we. We have an attitude here of we want to leave this, um, you know, piece of land that we cultivate in a in a better condition than how we found it, mm. and uh, you know we've got kids that are coming into to 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 you know into the business now, and we'd we'd really like to leave them something really special, you know. And I think we, um, you know, when when you talk about that, you know, some of the some of the vineyard sort of work that we're doing at the moment in terms of replanting and things like that. Um, you know, our generation won't see the result of, of all of that clonal work and things that we're doing with um, with Pinot and Cabernet and 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 you know Chardonnay f- for you know in 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 my working life. Um, but it'll be nice to think that the next generation will benefit from from you know hopefully some fairly wise decisions. And tell us a bit about your winemaking. It's interesting. I think you said in the early days you were you were show focus for the first 10 years that's the australian show system which basically rewards wines with gold silvers and bronzes etc and, and then your approach changed radically didn't it in 98 1998 and i love a quote of yours you're saying it's harder to do nothing was that the thing that changed what was it that changed you after 10 years there yeah look there are a few things that changed us um at that point in time i think that you know leanne had gone through a, a cancer scare and she she's fine now but um she was. Uh, we 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 did a lot of soul searching in terms of uh, what we really wanted to 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 get out of life and to to do. And I think often in Australia, and you know, particularly in the early days, the wine show system was such a um, you know was such an important 
um, you know, system for promoting wine. And and uh, and I think people were tending to make wines for the wine show system, not make wines that they really enjoyed or reflected, you know, the place in which they're grown or, you know, all of the, you know, aspects of terroir. So I, I guess um, it's, you know, it, it was just a, a, a change of heart. We, we, we decided that we wanted to, you know, make a bit of wine in France and uh, we went to Gevray, bags packed, uh, bought some fruit, made some wine, you know, probably didn't learn anything about winemaking but we just felt that we, we, we understood finally that it was so important to understand the land that you cultivate mm. and that wines, you know, wines need to reflect that. And I suppose everything that we've done since then have been to try and make wine that reflects the site and the season. And irrespective of what, of what a wine judge thinks of the wines that we make or our interpretation, I'm not, you know, I'm not that concerned. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, when you do adopt that kind of thing, people genuinely like the, you know, sort of, they genuinely like the wines that you make. So yeah, I, I suppose, think- yeah. I was going to say, I think the wine show system has changed. I mean, you were chairman of the Melbourne show and I was lucky enough to judge it with you as the international judge 2008 to 2010. I remember you telling us on the first day, I don't want you to give a gold medal to anything you wouldn't buy a case of. So I think enjoyment, you put kind of enjoyment front of it, front of, you know, front, front of judgment, really, um, rather than just saying to people, you know, look for the faults, kicked out all the faults, we want super clean wines. So there's been this shift in the show system, hasn't there? Yeah, look, I I think it's been great the the changes, and I think you know it it wasn't um, you know we were still giving you know we're still giving you know trophies to you know incredibly oaky wines in you know prior to this sort of happening, and I think one of one of the the changes we tried to make at Melbourne was to 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 look for wines with charm and interest, and maybe not look firstly for for wine faults, but to look for for some of the really nice things and in in wine. And I and I think the collection of people that we assembled for that for that wine show were fantastic, and everybody really embraced it. And I think um, you know we had lots of debates with other wine shows and things like that about you know about you know, perhaps some of the classes and things like that. But I, I really think it changed a lot of the way people looked at wine shows and and um, how how other things. And I, I think now, you know, um, you know, Brisbane wine shows, you know, a very considered wine show. If I put something in there, I kind of, I, I know the sort of people it's got to get past mm. um, to do well, you know, people that drink, that drink very nice wine. And uh, and are quite considered and things like that. Yeah. The, the other the other sort of bit that I could never work out in the early days was was we we'd sit around as wine judges at night and we'd drink all this lovely Burgundy, white and red, the occasional you know sort of bottle of Bordeaux or whatever, and we'd go to the show the next day and we'd forget everything we drank the previous night that we were all waxing <laughs> lyrical about and. Uh, we would give it to the sort of Australian versions of, of this sort of thing. So I, I suppose there was also maybe a little bit of a change to a, a more European, a, a, you know, to, 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 to a more European style or yeah. English style of judging, I suppose, yeah. you know, just looking for, for you know, 
charm and for, and finesse, for character maybe. and subtlety okay. and finesse, yeah. yes. I mean, I love your advice to aspiring winemakers, which is to drink lots of interesting wine and make wine you want to drink. I mean, I know you, you drink a lot of good wine. I mean, not just Australian wine, but you, you love kind of having a global perspective on wine, don't you? What else do you like drinking? Oh, look, I, you know, um, wine's become... You know, it's it it's become so expensive. You know, you and I used to probably drink, you know, a, you know more than our fair share of of um, of you know Russo, Ravino, Rulo, um, Chave, um, etc. You know, in 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 the early days, and um, and now I suppose you know the we, 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 you know I guess with the cost of those wines. We tend to drink, you know, easier sort of styles of wine, and you know, much more accessible and things like that. So, I drink a lot of local, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot. Um, we're very interested. Leanne and I are very interested in Gamay. Um, we're quite interested in Pinot Gris. It gets a bit of a bad run, Pinot Gris, but I think grown in some cool areas, I think it can make some some fairly exciting wine. And uh, and internationally, we 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 drink a, a fair bit of um, you know Beaujolais. Um, you know, and a little bit of Chablis and the occasional bottle of, of Burgundy, but when we can afford it, right? <laughs> when we can afford it. Uh, the, the other, the other sort of area, I suppose, that I've been looking at. Uh, you know, we've been drinking a bit more of uh, the more aromatic styles of um, of Syrah and Grenache. Um, some of those sort of, you know, lighter, more fragrant, you know, wines, uh, large wood, um, you know, etc. And we. You know, I think every winemaker in Australia is incredibly interested in Grenache, mm. sort of particularly in our warm climates. So, mm. yeah. Tell us a bit more about Chardonnay. Cause, I mean, I, partly because I love your Chardonnays, but it's arguably the grape that's improved most in Australia over the last decade or so. I mean, wh- what was it that that changed? Do you think, and where will further improvements come from? Well, Chardonnay, um, I feel probably changed. Uh, um, in around 2002 to 2005 i think they were the they were the big they were they were the big years of change and i think we'd all been we'd all been waiting for things to ripen what we perceived as as you know bome ripeness was you know always at a 12 and a half and we'd we'd lose all of our acidity um you know at, you know and particularly in places like the yarra we'd lose acidity from 12 12 potential alcohol to 12 and a half so we we thought we would, you know, start picking a little bit earlier and uh, we would make some finer sort of styles of wine. We were a little bit different to some others. We we did like to put our wines through through uh, through male lactic fermentation too so that we could at least balance if we didn't have high high alcohols, if we were only around that 11, 8 or 12 alcohol, we would at least have softness in our acidity. So, um, so I think we did that. Sometimes I feel we, we went too far. And too, too, um, uh, too lean, and and that sort of stuff. And I think that's a criticism, you know, generally that most people would have of of those early changes. But I think um, it it is the pendulum story. You know, if you, you know, if you never know what it's like, you know, if you're hovering at around eleven o'clock um, on the dial, and you you you. You take it to two, two o'clock, for example, um, and two's just a bit too far. Um, then at least you can come back to one thirty or to to, to one o'clock. Um, and I think you know we always said that 
you know, you were pretty piss weak if you didn't know where where it was that you know went too far. Mm, um, yeah. You know, you've 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 almost got to go past the point of the pendulum. So, mm. um, so I suppose it's just you know, if you want to be on the edge, you've got to you've you've you know you've got to be fairly game. Well, it's interesting because I mean, you've always liked to push boundaries, and I just wonder, you know, have you ever gone too far? Any stuff ups you'd like to tell us about, and and successes that have come out of you pushing something too far and thinking, hatch it's not too far. Yeah, um, I think I think that Chardonnay one was a bit too far. I, I wrote something else down, but um, yeah, probably whole bunches in Syrah. I think you know, like there were times when I got fairly excited about. Um, whole bunches in Syrah because I just thought it gave this fabulous graphite sort of character. But I think uh, in some of the years when we didn't quite have the ripeness, the greenness came through too much. And I think we've we've since learned, uh, you know, we've learned a fair bit about Syrah now where, you know, we know what to do in the, you know, if we're going to include whole bunches in Syrah, then we do it in the riper Warmer years, and uh, you know, and the wines are, uh, are stunning. And and in those cooler years, we we now tend to realise that you know you do whole berries and leave the stems out of it. So I suppose that's one area that you know we you, you learn as you go. You know, you it's, <laughs> it's it it doesn't happen overnight. And this is this thing of of uh, you know learning learning about the land that you cultivate and uh, and that sort of stuff, and starting to understand that. Tell us a bit more about, about Pinot Noir because you, you've described Pinot as your obsession, I think. Um, I don't know if you remember Craig Smith uh, used to run the Australian Wine Centre in the Strand in London and he was the self-appointed secretary of the Australian Pinot Noir Why Do We Bother Society. I mean, yeah, things have yeah. changed a bit since then. I mean, Aussie Pinot now is really good, isn't it? Is, is that site? Is it clones? Is it a combination of the two? Is it winemaking? What is it? I think um, I think with, with Pinot... Um, the, we, we always said to ourselves in the early days, and we used to talk about this as a group of Pinot producers and things like that, when we stop trying to make red burgundy, we'll probably make the best Pinots we've ever made. And I think I, I think the direction of Australian Pinots really changed in the last five to six years. I think people are really looking for fragrance and aromatics um, not so much deepness of colour and that sort of thing. I think that's, um, you know, pretty good. And I think, you know, there's some real drinkability happening at the moment in in Australian Pinot. I've probably never felt it's more different to Burgundy at the moment, and I think that's awesome. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, fantastic that we're not trying to emulate that. And I think some of the wines, you know, um, in not trying to be like Burgundy, I think they're going to, to, you know, sort of develop into something really exciting and similarly exciting. Um, we, 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 we've always had an attitude that, you know, that we, you know, if you can't afford to drink it, you might as well make it, you know. <laughs> like you can't afford to, to, to buy something that really, you know, does this to us, then I think it is important that you you really try and make some of it. And I think, you know, what, what I'm seeing at the moment in in at, at really the top end of Pinot Noir, um, you know, like I'm talking about areas like the Upper Yarra and some of the best vineyards there. I'm talking about 
um, sort of main ridge and and uh, yeah, Red Hill on the Mornington Peninsula, those upper vineyards. Um, you know, just about all over Tasmania, there's some really exciting, you know, Pinot sites and things like that. But I think, um, uh, yeah, you know, one of the things we were talking about the other day, apart from that fruit, is just this um, idea of not being afraid to pull it out of oak a little earlier if you feel it's going to sort of dry out and maintaining sort of fruit freshness and things like that. And I've I've tried some Pinots in the last few years that have been pulled out in, you know, like that have had barely six months of age um, in their maturation in 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 barrels, and and they're ready. They're they're delicious. They're 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 complete, and and it's not like they're falling over, you know, quickly either. They 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 have a brightness about them, and uh, you know, and I'm 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 really excited about that. Tell us about so-called alternative grapes and which ones have the most potential, maybe in, in, especially in the Yarra Valley, um, and just wonder about how those fit in with how climate change is affecting the Australian wine industry. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we're, we're pretty gung-ho about, about Gamay. Um, we're growing a fair bit. We've got a fair bit of clonal material. We, we're pulling some Pinot Noir vineyards out, which we think are too warm. Um, and we're replanting with either Syrah, um, Cabernet or, or Gamay. Um, and I suppose, um, with Gamay, we, we're, we're just finding that the wines are, are so bright, uh, so easy to drink. They're, they're, have, have got this sort of, and it's a, you know, it's a word overdone, but a little crunchiness and things like that to them. And, um, I just think they're a, a, you know, just a really lovely, you know, sort of bistro style red. We 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 think that there's, you know, sort of tremendous opportunities. Um, we're, we've we've grown more than we need, and we're starting to sell to a few of the smaller producers to try and get Gamay out there for a lot of the people that don't understand it. So that's sort of, you know, going to be pretty important. But I think it is a variety that's very well suited to the Yarra. And and look, there's lots being planted in Tasmania as well. People are people are pretty excited about it. Um, as for some of the warmer sites in the Yarra, I would say that, and we don't have any planted, but I'd say Grenache will, um, it, it will become quite popular here. Mm-hmm. We've already made a, you know, a commitment to Grenache in Heathcote. So, you know, it's a bit difficult for, for me to turn around and say, I've changed my mind, um, on where we should <laughs> grow, grow Grenache. But I think, you know, it's, um, I, I think Grenache is, you know, it's a variety that, is beautifully fragrant. Um, it it doesn't need to be big and things like that. One of the you know, and I, I think the you know the I think the warmer climates um, you know I think they're starting to appreciate you know how good Grenache and Carignan and some of these other varieties are going to be the Iberian grape varieties um, in some of those warmer climates. Italian maybe and yeah, some Italian some Italian things. I mean, I. I'd love to have some Norello Mescalese, you know, available to to plant or some Caracante, you know. Mm. So I, I suppose it's just, you know, I, I think there's real opportunities with with climate change to 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 fix the the problems we have in, you know, with with you know sort of traditional varieties that are maybe not as suitable anymore. Mm. Um, like I, I couldn't even imagine drinking a straight McLaren Vale Shiraz anymore without having some Grenache in it 
you know, because the Grand Ash is so gorgeous. You, why wouldn't you put it in there? You know, <laughs> even a you know a ten or fifteen percent addition to yeah. give a little bit of charm and perfume to the wines. Yeah. Yeah. T- tell us about the next generation. Cause your kids, Kate and Sally, both lovely kids. Um, are they working the business now? The fourth generation of the of the De Bortoli Webbers. <laughs> yeah, well, Kate's working in the business as a winemaker in the Yarra. Um, she studied science at at, at at a local university here, Monash, and, um, you know, she's been doing vintages around the world. Um, you know, we think the, we, we really think that the winemaking experience, or I, I feel the winemaking experience that she's going to get is going to really give her some, um, you know, is going to give her some, some real knowledge and, uh, some sort of credibility, I suppose. Um, to do some other stuff for us if she wanted to 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 move out of winemaking and get into some other sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, in 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 a lot of sort of family companies, you know, finding finding people that have got a passion for wine and and a, a genuine understanding and sort of particularly with product development and you know that type of thing, understanding what what wine is about and and um, and you know, I think like that's what we we find when we're talking to to marketing people is you know we can you know we're traveling the world we're we're drinking a whole lot of wine from a whole you know different range of regions and things like that and I think um, you know often it's um, you know it's something that's sort of missing in in uh, in 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 some companies and I think families need that need that. Uh, you know that knowledge, I suppose, of, mm. of of what the world of wine is. I mean, we know you like travelling, uh, and I know you make a mean pizza because I've had some of them. <laughs> I mean, do you ever feel the need to get away from wine, How do you, or is it just so much a part of your life that it's you don't need to? Look, I think. Um, uh, look, I, wine's such a such an amazing sort of thing because you do it for a job and you do it for joy. You know, um, we've just had we've just had um, a couple of weeks in Corsica with some friends. You know, sixteen of us went away, including our kids and their their partners and uh, and some friends. And you, whilst we didn't visit any wineries or anything like that, um, everybody loves wine. So you know, you're you're constantly you know. Um, and you, everybody's interested in trying the local produce and things like that. We we drank our body weight in into the rosé daily, um, <laughs> you know, while we're in Corsica. But I think you know it, it is difficult to get away from it because it's it's like food. It's mm-hmm. you know it's very much part of your life, and uh, you know, and I think um, so. We while we don't get too carried away with wine, um, you know, when we're socially or when when we're traveling it's uh it's sort of quite you know it's still very much part of your lives we mm. we love drinking good wine and, and we love eating fantastic food so yeah it's true i must say i love drinking great wine and enjoying fantastic with you, food with you because some of the best meals i've had in my life have been with you in your company <laughs> opening great bottles of wine it's been too long i hope to see you very soon thanks for being on the podcast see you either in australia or back over here in europe thanks mate yeah no problem tip thanks what a thoughtful and talented winemaker Steve is. The Yarra Valley is lucky to have him. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the journalist John Bonnet, author of The New French Wine. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, 
timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at timatkin and on Instagram at timatkinmw. See you next week.